We asked for your questions about objectivist philosophy and you submitted them. And answering your questions about philosophy is something that we're making a regular feature of this podcast. And today is our sixth installment of this, of this Q&A series. So welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Agustina Vergara Sid and I'm a junior fellow at ARI. And with me today are Ben Bayer, fellow and instructor at ARI and Mike Massa, associate fellow at ARI. Welcome Ben and Mike. Thanks, Agustina. Okay, so we have a few questions to answer today on different topics. So let's just get started with the first one. So the first question says, how did Rand handle the problem of the long-term versus short-term short happiness in her own life? For instance, did she enjoy visiting parties, drinking and having fun with her friends or was she only fully dedicated to writing and her intellectual work throughout her life? So I think this is an interesting question uh, and it's a biographical question, but it's got some philosophical aspects to it that we should talk about too. She did most of these things. And I don't think that she saw there as being a problem of, uh, or at least a serious problem of long-term versus short-term happiness. And let me I'll first comment on, on the biographical part and then I'll talk about the, the philosophic aspect. So she, Ayn Rand had a lot of friends. She uh, spent a lot of time talking with them and socializing with them. Uh, if you look at the various accounts of her life, especially from the people who knew her best, uh, she was regularly uh, inviting people over uh, for uh, social occasions. Um, you know, sometimes the purpose was for uh, talking about philosophy. It was to it was to talk about her works in progress, to get feedback. It was to help uh, her students learn more about her philosophy. But sometimes it was just for social occasions. Uh, if you take a look at the book, A Hundred Voices, which is a series of biographical interviews about Ayn Rand by people who, with people who knew her. Uh, for instance, there's an interview with Catherine Eikhoff, talks about how she would sometimes have people over to her house to do ballroom dancing. I don't think that had any kind of philosophical ulterior motives uh, behind it. Uh, there's all kinds of other accounts in this uh, book of various things that Ayn Rand did just because it gave her joy. Uh, she celebrated holidays, she loved Christmas, she had all kinds of pets, uh, cats especially. Um, there's a very amusing story in this book about a time she went to a party at the Playboy Club and pretended to be a tour guide who had pretended to be her on the radio. Uh, Tanya Grossinger looked that up. It's a very amusing story. Uh, and of course, she loved all kinds of art uh, and not just for the sake of philosophical analysis, but because it, it gave her joy to consume. Um, the one exception to this list, because the person asked, did she uh, enjoy visiting parties, drinking, having fun with friends? Ayn Rand didn't uh, herself like uh, to drink alcohol, but it wasn't out of some kind of philosophical uh, conviction. She just didn't like the effects on her. Uh, she, they, she kept and served alcohol uh, at her apartment for friends who came over and liked it. She still always had a glass of champagne uh, every New Year's Eve, or at least a sip of champagne, I think. Um, and I, I go into some of these biographical details just because I do think that, I mean, it's a good kind of question to ask, uh, does a philosopher live up to her philosophical ideals. I think the primary question you should be thinking about when you consider uh, a, a new philosophy is, is it true? Do you think the arguments support it? But when it's a philosophy that purports to be a philosophy for living on earth, a philosophy that is, that is imminently practical, then you should think, well, does someone actually succeed in practicing it? And in this case, I think Ayn Rand did. I think she was living up to her own philosophy in doing this. And it's, it's worth explaining just a little bit about why, because there's, there's a, a way that this question is being asked that uh, suggests the person doesn't quite understand why uh, somebody who lived according to the objectivist ethics uh, wouldn't just be working all the time. And the reason why that's not what the objectivist ethics maintains is, I think, first and foremost, because it holds that your happiness is the moral purpose of your life. And happiness is something that is only ever experienced in the present. Um, now, that doesn't mean that you don't uh, have a view of the long term. Of course, it's, it's super important that you do. But I thought, uh, just as a reference, I would share with you uh, a quote from 
a passage in Ayn Rand's essay, The Objectivist Ethics, which you can find in the Ayn Rand lexicon's entry on happiness online. And uh, here's a passage from Ayn Rand talking about happiness, which I think is pertinent to the question. She said, it's by experiencing happiness that one lives one's life in any hour, year, or the whole of it. And when one experiences the kind of pure happiness that is an end in itself, the kind that makes one think this is worth living for, what one is greeting and affirming in emotional terms is the metaphysical fact that life is an end in itself. So there has to be room in, in life for uh, joys that you experience simply for their own sake and not just as a means to some other ends. Now it's true and important that uh, Ayn Rand wasn't a hedonist. She didn't think that you should live for the moment uh, at the expense of the future. And she didn't think that pleasure as such was a standard of value, but she did think the genuine pleasure uh, as a form of happiness is, is part of the purpose of ethics. And that it's what results when you're pursuing uh, genuine rational values and it's a, it's a value itself. And um, I'll just uh, close with one last reference. And then I know Mike has some things to say about this, but there's another story from another uh, account of Ayn Rand's life. Uh, this one from the book Facets of Ayn Rand uh, by Charles and Marianne Suarez. And we're beginning to publish these chapters incidentally on, on New Ideal. We'll publish the chapter that this passage is from, I think as soon as uh, next month. And there's a story that Marianne Suarez tells in this in, in her interview about somebody who raised a similar kind of question of Marianne and then Marianne brought it to Ayn Rand. And I'll just read the story because I think it gets to the essence of the issue. She says, I was depressed because an acquaintance had criticized me for taking pleasure in cleaning a, a copper bottomed frying pan. I enjoyed cleaning it and then seeing it shine on the wall, hanging on a pegboard. It was the only piece of decoration in my kitchen. I was bothered by the criticism that I was finding enjoyment in something so non-intellectual. And she takes this question to Ayn Rand and Ayn Rand tells her, you're applying philosophy to your life. This is what philosophy is for. She explained the necessity of identifying your values and knowing why they are values, why you shouldn't give up a value because someone questions it, even if you can't fully explain why it's important to you. And that's from uh, the chapter called Working for Ayn Rand in Facets of Ayn Rand, which we'll be publishing uh, in New Ideal in sometime early to mid-March. Um, so, uh, Mike, you have any further thoughts on this one? Yeah, so just, just the way the question is posed kind of sets up an opposition between long and short-term happiness, um, or you can think of it long and short-term goals. Um, I think you want to be careful about thinking of these two things as in opposition, as if like they're opposing forces that need to be put into a balance or equilibrium. So if you think of pursuing like a central purpose or a long-term goal in life, um, <clears throat> a big part of doing that well is maintaining the energy and motivation to do it. Um, and if you think of just the sort of activities the questioner listed, during the party, spending time with friends, Ben mentioned ran ballroom dancing. Um, some people, you know, play a sport, go surfing, go hiking, whatever. Those are just the sort of activities that very productive people would describe as um, energizing, recharging, refreshing. Um, there is such a thing as you accomplish some um, intermediate goal and you just you want to break. Um, you want to take some time off um, or um, you know, a lot of people work on a weekly cycle. You think of the weekend as, all right, now I get to rest a little bit. Um, take my mind off of things and then return to work. That's part of maintaining a long-term um, um, long energy and motivation on your goals. Now, on the other side of things, if you think of the short-term activities um, apart from your life as a whole, so imagine the sort of person who works for the weekend and that's they really mean that, like they don't like their job and they're at work so they can have the money to go party or you know, whatever, travel once a year or something like that. Um, if those activities are disconnected from your larger purpose in life and your enjoyment of that, uh, these activities become aimless. You're, you work for the weekend, you're, you aren't taking a break from work, you're looking for an escape from work. Um, and 
you know, do you, you have the perspective that, well, most of the time I spend in my life working and I don't like it. That makes those short-term activities escapist uh, avoidance. You're avoiding something you dislike rather than taking the time to enjoy something that's pleasant for, uh, to you. So if you have a, a good perspective on um, call it a work-life balance or a, a, a long-term, short-term um, um, goals, then you shouldn't see the two as um, conflicting forces. So Mike, you mentioned uh, the issue of central purpose and Rand actually talks a lot about a central purpose and she says, and I quote, productive work is the central purpose, purpose of a rational man's life, the central value that integrates and determines the hierarchy of all of his other values, close quote. She says this in The Virtue of Selfishness. So how do we fit these, all these other values that are not related to productive work into this central purpose? Or are these other values contributing somehow to the pursuit of that central purpose, which is productive work? Yeah, I think this is part of the reason why the person's asking the question, because they know about the central importance that Ayn Rand attaches to productive work. And so they're wondering, how do you fit these other parts of life into it? And uh, it it's one thing that's really important to say is that for Ayn Rand, when she's talking about the central purpose uh, that uh, work serves, central does not mean ultimate. It doesn't mean that everything that you do in life is for the sake of work. And so there's a, so even if you think, if the way you're thinking of uh, recreation is, well, I'm, I'm taking a break, but I'm just taking the break in order to, uh, in order to do even better at the work that I'm going to do the next day. That's not even quite right. I mean, it's also true. It's, it, it's true that recreation is a means to the end of, of doing your work later, but that's not all it is. It's, it's certainly not experienced that way most of the time for, for people who value recreation, it's experienced as, as an end in itself. Friendship, art, recreation, they're not just means to the ends of production. Ayn Rand didn't have the parties just so that she could write at the shrug. Uh, what central means is that it is uh, of central, but not exclusive importance. That means there's other things that are orbiting around it. And the things that are orbiting around it, like uh, friendship and art and recreation and other relationships, uh, they they're still they can still be ends in themselves, part of living, uh, in, important parts of living. They're just not um, instrument. They're not merely instrumental in that respect. Um, what what central does mean? What the central value of work does mean is that work is. I, I like to think of it by analogy to the heart. It's 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 one of the most important organs of the body that gives life to all the rest, and that's true of productive work in relation to our lives. And so one thing that's true is that central, uh, that work is what uh, pays for you to be able to do all the other things. But also um, that means that the other things can't interfere with it. They can't, they have to integrate. Your life has to form a whole. And it's, it's even better if, even if the, the non-central values in your life aren't merely instruments uh, as means to the end of your work, it's, it's often good if they complement it in a certain kind of way. And so for instance, Ayn Rand chose her friends very carefully. They cho she chose friends who shared values with her and who uh, in particular people who shared the values of the intellectual life that she was engaged in. She, she saw friendship and love as a kind of being fellow travelers along a current, along the same path toward the same kinds of goals. That doesn't mean that the friendship is simply uh, that you're simply making friends who are means to that end, but you enjoy being with them as you're together on that same quest. And and related to this, um, I'm going to bring up something that that really um, gets my attention. So from what I know about Ayn Rand and her life, she was very very singularly focused on her writing and developing her philosophy. And uh, I know a lot of other people, I know them personally, they have that same kind of focus uh, on their work. And they hold, as opposed to some of the people, you know, that work for the weekend and, and all that, they, they hold their work as the highest or one of the highest values in their life. 
So how do you think Rand and, and people like her found enjoyment in quote lesser values like going to a party or even collecting stamps, which was one of Ayn Rand's hobbies? Well, in my own case, I can't, I can't speculate uh, what it felt like for them to do that. So I, I can only speak of my own case because I, I am also someone who uh, I think work is my central value in life. And just to concretize that a bit, I certainly don't work for the weekend. I don't, I don't feel like I'm working for the weekend, but when it's Friday and I've had you know, a long week of hard work, I think of myself as looking forward to the weekend by the time it's Friday. Um, and, but by the end, and then I enjoy what, what time I can on the weekend doing various recreational activities. I like to run, I like to hike, I like to meet friends. Um, but by the time it's Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, I'm now looking forward to Mondays. I'm, I'm looking forward, to, I'm getting ready for what I need to do uh, at a new busy week. And it's, it's a cycle like that. And I think that's, that's um, representative of the broader point in Ayn Rand's view that life is an end in itself. And what that really means is that all of the important values in life are both means and ends. They're, they're, they're means to the end of still further values, uh, but they are values themselves. And that's what it means for life to be a self-sustaining process, that it's, that it's a means to the end of more of itself. I don't know if, Mike, you wanted to add anything uh, to that one. Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, and, and I think there's something to be said, Mike, you mentioned earlier about how these recreational activities help uh, help you like rest and rejuvenate to even like do a better job at your for your, your productive purpose. Um, so, all right. Yeah, let's. It, it, yes, go ahead. Oh, just it's um, it's good to. So uh, since Ben shared some um, of his process. I can share some of mine. Like if I'm stuck on a problem, a lot of times I like to take a day and just do something I enjoy, um, hiking or so say, and don't I won't do anything other than just enjoy the the hike or whatever the activity is. And then that kind of clears my mind to look at the same problem uh fresh. So I think that's a that's a one of many good ways to in integrate kind of short-term recreational activities with larger purpose. And it probably wouldn't have the effect of, of serving as a means to the end of solving the problem later if you weren't trying to experience it as an end in itself at, at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's switch gears now and uh, let's go to our second question. And the question is very short, but very profound. Is objectivity possible? So why don't I uh, start us off on this one? So yes, in objectivism's view, it is possible. Now, objectivism has a, a particular meaning to that term, uh, objectivity, that does have some differences from, I think, the common expectations of what it would be um, to be objective that, that you find out in people who are, especially people who are skeptical, skeptical of the possibility of objectivity. So there's a view that being objective means coming at a question from no particular perspective. So sometimes this is, uh, I think there's actually a, a, a philosophy paper defending uh, this view called the view from nowhere. So it's the idea that being objective would mean having no interests in the question, no perspective from which the question is asked, um, no particular um, nature to the to the question asker that it that would condition the answer. Um, now, this is not uh, the view that objectivism has. So, if you take the um, the standard of objectivity as having a kind of view from nowhere then I think the answer is, yeah, you can't have that, but that's not the right way to think about objectivity to begin with. So what's the right way? Um, well, so just as a, as a first pass, it's often claimed that objectivity is some kind of freedom from bias, which I think we can say is partially true depending on 
what we mean by uh, the, the term bias. So if a bias is some kind of like, uh, let's say you, you read in the paper about um, uh, police shooting and you know from past episodes of reading these stories that you are prone to really wanna look at things from the perspective of the police and give them every benefit of the doubt and you discount the perspective of, um, of the potential victims. That's a kind of bias in one direction and plenty of people have the bias in the other direction. They're prone to look at those kind of conflicts from the perspective of, um, well, he's just some guy minding his own business and you don't wanna consider that maybe he was doing something that got him in this situation. So you can have biases in either directions and you can learn that about your own thinking. And then you can um, correct from them. So again, if the view is that objectivity is uh, some kind of freedom from any perspective, that's an impossible standard. But if you think of um, objectivity as primarily about your method and about how you proceed in asking uh, questions and, in, and investigating um, questions, then I think there's a, uh, then I think it's, it's true that objectivity is possible. So what's the um, objectivist view of how this should work? So I think we have a quote from, um, from Leonard Peikoff's book, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. There we go. I think we've got the quote, just um, the reference. <laughs> ah, just the reference, okay. So the, the, uh, the quote I'm thinking of is, he, he describes object, objectivity as volitional adherence to reality by, a, uh, by the method of logic. So we can focus on three different components. So the, the first is the, reality part. So it's a reality focused perspective. Um, it's a choice or a commitment you make to pursue the truth, whatever it might be. Uh, that is whatever it might turn out to be, whether or not you want it to be that way, whether or not you expected it to be that way. Um, however you feel about it, you're committing yourself to the truth. So there's a, uh, a choice involved here to be reality focused and it's to be reality focused by uh, some sort of method, the method um, of logic as Dr. Peikoff puts it. So uh, what does that um, mean? Well, you have to have in being objective, some conception of how to proceed to get at the truth. That is, you have to know what would it take to know what's true in this particular uh, case? I think Ben's gonna, discuss um, an example in a, in a minute, but you need to have some conception of the, met, of the steps to get to the truth and some self-awareness as to whether or not you're uh, taking those steps. So just think of um, the idea, uh, sorry, the uh, standards that are in um, a criminal trial or a murder trial. So if you've seen these kind of courtroom dramas, there's means, motive, and opportunity. So you have a conception, uh, you have a question, is the accused guilty? You have some um, conception of the steps or the question, the sub-questions you need to ask, uh, have answered to find out whether or not the subject's guilty. And then you can think whether or not those um, steps have actually been taken. So is there a real motive here? Did the accused have the opportunity? Did they have the means to do it? Um, so some other issues that come up in being objective, you have to be concerned with uh, fact finding. So finding all the facts, not just the ones that give you your preferred answer. So if you um, uh, collect the evidence that points towards one suspect and that suspect gives you an alibi, are you gonna go check the alibi or are you going to dismiss it? Um, you have to be concerned with finding all the relevant facts. And another thing to think about is whether or not the answer you arrive at is consistent with all the other things 
uh, all the other things you know. If you find that your answer is inconsistent, do you pause to resolve the contradiction? In any event, um, if you're doing all these things, if you're self-consciously trying to, to uh, figure out what's true and you're asking, you're continually like pinging yourself, am I doing everything I could be doing? Is there, is there a, um, another uh, question I need to ask to, to answer my ultimate question? Then you're being objective in the sense, um, in the sense that we're talking about um, here. So if this sounds hard, that's, that's because of being objective is hard. It's work. It's a choice you have to make and it's a um, process you have to commit yourself to go through. Now, as a final thought, for the moment, there's no guarantee that being objective will lead to the truth. That is, being mistaken is compatible with being objective. So if to the best of your knowledge and the best of your ability, um, you reach a conclusion, all the evidence you've been able to find um, point you in one direction, there's no counter evidence, and you, you, know, you close the book, so to speak, on the question, that's, that's, it's still possible you made a mistake or that there's some new piece of information that'll come, uh, come up that'll kind of undo the, undo the whole thing. But if you're objective about your mistakes, you can go through the process again and correct your errors. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, I want to really just I think. underscore a lot of the things you said there, Mike, um, and you, you emphasized really importantly that objectivity is not simply about being free of uh, bias, but of actually using this positive method of logic to try to figure out what's true. And something I just want to observe about both of those aspects of it, where I think the, the positive is the fundamental is that both of them, as, as you said, are choices that you have to make. If, if you're going to, if you, if you realize that you have certain biases and you try to cancel their influence on your thinking, if you learn methods for figuring out the truth and you actually activate those methods, these are choices that you make with your mind. And what the question, what the question is objectivity possible really reduces to is the question of whether you can make that choice. And you have to think, what would it mean if you couldn't? If you couldn't really just make the choice to focus on what's true, on figuring out what's true, on using what you know to figure out figuring out what's true, it would mean that there, there were certain choices you just couldn't make, that you were determined not to make. It would, it would amount to a kind of denial of the existence of free will. And that's, I think, and, so, and then the point that you make, Mike, at the end about how being objective doesn't mean you're guaranteed to get it right is important because this is something we have control over. We don't always have control over whether we get it right, but we do have control over whether we are trying to get it right. And that's a really important thing to have control over. That's what objectivity amounts to. And if you deny that it's possible, you're, you're basically saying you don't have control over minds. So I wanna pick up on, on, on something uh that you might mention. And I wonder if you can elaborate a little, bit more, a little bit more, which is the issue of being wrong or reaching a wrong conclusion while being objective. So if I follow the guidelines that you mentioned to be objective and I arrive to a conclusion that I honestly think is the truth, and so I, I, I follow an objective process and I'm being objective, but then further facts arise that are that were unavailable or undiscoverable by me for whatever reason before, and they contradict the conclusion that I reached. Can I can it still be said that I was being objective the first time? And an example I'm thinking of is, for instance, if which I think happens all the time, is it's a scientist. If a, if a scientist is, for instance, researching uh, how to cure a disease and objectively reaches the conclusion that uh, X medication is the cure for that disease. And then say two years later, it's discovered that, that a different medication is much better. So was the first scientist being actually objective? And if he was being objective, how come he didn't see the full reality of things and found the true answers the first time? 
yeah, I'll, I'll say something about that because your, your example of the scientist who is in effect doing the best they can, considering all the evidence that they can, but still ends up correcting their conclusion on the basis of later evidence. I mean, it's the kind of thing that Mike, I think, was talking about when he talked about how objectivity is compatible with error. And your example, they find, for instance, a, a, an even better medication than they found before. I think there are forms of error that are even bigger than that, that are, that are still totally compatible with being objective. You can have cases where uh, all of the evidence uh, points to somebody's guilt in a crime and, and you put them in jail because of it, uh, because it was circumstantial evidence. And then years later, genetic evidence comes, uh, becomes available that exonerates them from the crime. And it's possible in cases like that, that the person reached the error because they were being biased, but it's also possible that really all of the evidence they had pointed to that wrong conclusion. And it's, it's really important to emphasize that objectivity is not about the results. It's not about the truth or falsehood of the conclusion. It's, it's about using a method that's aimed at getting you the true conclusion, but it is about the method. It's about the propriety of the method. And it's important to have a concept that is just about the method that's independent of the truth or falsehood of the results. And that's in part because we need to, it makes a difference to be able to identify people who are using objective methods, even when they lead to uh, the wrong conclusion. In part, it's because people who use objective methods and make mistakes are the ones who are more likely to self-correct. So like if you're uh, actually being biased, if you're not being objective, you're not being logical, you're just trying to frame somebody uh, or you're not necessarily trying to frame them, but you're, you're, you're biased in favor of their guilt. And so you don't look too closely at the evidence that might exonerate them uh, in the first place. Then when you reach the conclusion that they're guilty, and later find that genetic evidence that would exonerate them, you might just find excuses not to look at it and not to try to correct your conclusion. Somebody who reached the conclusion objectively in the first place, even though it was wrong, if they reached it because that's what the evidence really pointed to, then when new evidence comes in, they'll realize that it is new evidence, that it makes a difference to the conclusion, and they will say, we were wrong. We got to let this guy out of jail. And it makes a big difference to know uh, whether somebody is using that method or not if it's yourself if you if you make a mistake even though you were trying to be objective and you discover the truth later it's good to know that you were being objective because it, it it's a source of self-esteem it's that you know you were doing the best that you could do and certainly if you're uh if you identify someone else who uh even though they made a mistake was still being objective it's that's the kind of person you want in your life if if you if you figure out that they were just being uh, biased and, and prejudiced, uh, you, you, that's not somebody who's going to, um, that's somebody you want to run away from because uh, you're not going to be able to have honest dealings with them. Um, and so one question is, okay, if even if we need a concept for the method and not for the results, why call the method the method of objectivity? And, and one way I think about this is, well, somebody who's being objective, they're still object oriented in the, in the sense that they are focused on the facts out there in the world. It's the same reason we talk about objective journalism, uh, objective legal decisions, objective grading. Uh, these are all compatible uh, with making mistakes, but it, there's a difference between somebody who's doing objective journalism and subjective journalism. So a reporter who looks at the facts and then corrects when he makes errors is very different from somebody who's just slanted all the time and, and trying to push an agenda. Um, there, there is a sense in, uh, of objective that uh, philosophers sometimes use, and I think this has something to do with the one that Mike mentioned as the view from nowhere, uh, some, something to do with it. There's a sense where objective means independent of consciousness, and there's a valid use of this sense uh, Ayn Rand herself talks about the distinction between these two senses object of objective at one point in her writings. Uh, you can go to the uh, entry for the Ayn Rand lexicon on objectivity to learn more about this. Uh, that's, uh, so there's this independent of consciousness sense that's used to talk about there are certain facts that are out there that are independent of anybody knowing or, or, or believing anything about them. Um, but that's a different sense of the word than the sense where we talk about the possibility of being objective. Uh, being objective is a sense that describes uh, an epistemological sense of objective. It's something that you do with your mind 
where you're trying to figure out what the truth is out there that's independent of your mind. So just just two final uh, thoughts. So one is uh, here's a specific bias that I think is worth keeping an eye out for in your thinking that I think is important to overcome to be objective. And that's the um, wanting to be right bias as opposed to wanting to get it right bias. So we, um, we mentioned a few times criminal investigations. My understanding is that a lot of times what happens is that evidence starts to mount in favor of a specific uh, suspect as the guilty, uh, you know, as the culp as the actual culprit. And there's a kind of impetus behind this um, uh, uh, a defensiveness about having been wrong. Um, that's an important uh, important bias to uh, to be on the lookout for. I think there's a good um, fictional detective who does not have this bias, which is uh, Harry Bosch in the TV show and the books. Uh, Bosch, I know I'm a fan of the show. I haven't read the books, Ben. I think you read the books and liked the show. Is that yeah? So he's uh, he's one of the things that's enjoyable about him is he'll start to accumulate evidence in favor of a suspect and win everybody over in favor of that suspect. But then he'll notice some little thing that goes against his own theory. And now he's fighting against everybody who believes in his initial theory for a, for a new theory. Um, and that's, that's a, somebody who's, he's not, he, he, what he wants is to get it right, not to be right, um, is, uh, is one way to think about it. Now, as far as the error correction uh, point or the point that objectivity is compatible with error, I think part of being objective, especially in areas of thought where you know, one of the things you can know, for example, about criminal investigation is that there's, uh, it can be very error prone. And I think the amount of overturned um, capital crime convictions that we've seen come out in the last 20 years in, in, uh, as um, part of the Innocence Project has been exposing a lot of this. Um, it's just that there's a lot of room for error in, these, in, in this kind of thinking. Um, and one of the things you can do to continue to like double down on your objectivity is build in mechanisms for error correction. Like, what do you do if you come across new evidence that doesn't um, integrate with your, the theory of the crime? Um, maybe the appeals process in courts in the court systems might be uh, an, an exa good example of an error corrections correction mechanism. Um, you can appeal the decision to some disinterested third party, uh, you know, the higher courts, so they're no longer appealing to the same judge who made the previous decisions. Um, maybe the peer review process in some of the uh, healthier sciences, um, they're checking each other's work, at least, at least that's the ideal. Having an editor is a kind of error corrections mechanism. So I know from uh, my own writing, I'll go read over something a couple of times and there's no spelling mistakes or you know that kind of error. Uh, I can't find any. And then I send it to Ben and he has both content and, um, and uh, 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 errata uh, discoveries in my writing. So just showing your work to somebody else is an error correction mechanism. Um, you can have the personal policy of reviewing past decisions when you learn new facts relevant to them. That's a kind of like an internal error correction mechanism. Okay, I've um, come to a certain conclusion and now I learn a new surprising fact that bears on that conclusion let me review the case I had to begin with and see how it see how it goes now. Yeah, just real quick okay. about the Bosch example. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up, Mike, because uh, one of the best things about that character, and I love both the books and, and, and the TV shows, is that when he's initially accumulating the evidence that points to the theory that he then later challenges, uh, people are usually opposing him on that, too. And so he's objective first in proposing it. Uh, and then when he finds evidence that uh, that contradicts it, he's objective a second time over in, in explaining why his own initial theory was wrong. 
uh, it's a it's a great uh, character. Okay, let's move on to our third question, which is, in what form does a potential exist, and how does it relate to an actuality? Okay, I'll take this one. Um, so <clears throat> let's start by thinking of some actual, uh, sorry, some, uh, some examples of potentiality. So take the potential to um, easily break fragility or the potential to, um, to catch fire, something's, something's flammability. What are those things? So the question asks, in what form does a potential exist and how does it relate to an actuality? Well, think about a fragile uh, vase, like a glass vase. Why is it fragile? Well, it's made of a material that has certain actual properties, like properties related to its molecular structure, the intermolecular forces within it. Um, it's you know it's how, how thick the material is. A, th a thinner piece of uh, glass will be more fragile than a thicker. All of those things are actual properties. And then when the vase breaks, that is when the potentiality actualizes, what happens is it's subjected to an actual external force. So I think the lesson here, if the question is really about like what exists when we say something is potential, every potentiality is an actuality of a different sort. So a fragile vase has an actual structure which when it comes into contact with an actual external uh, force will then actually break. Um, it's, you can think of it as something is a potentiality. Um, any potentiality is an actual, a different sort of actuality. I think that's the basic answer to the question. Yeah, Mike, and it, it's the, the person who asked this question wrote a much longer uh, uh, elaborated version of it, uh, with including uh, aspects that we're not going to be able to talk about. But um, it sounded like part of what was motivating the question for the person was uh, wondering if uh, for there to be potentials, since there's a distinction between the potential and the actual, uh, potentials need to exist in some form other than uh, an actual entity. And then that raises all kinds mm -hmm. of puzzles. And I think you've basically answered the, the essential point there. Uh, I would just add to it that it's important that potential and actual are modifiers. And so they're always modifiers. You, you can only modify a real thing. Nothing exists separately from actually existing existence. And so uh, there aren't potentials that aren't potential somethings. Uh, it's, but when you're talking about what it's a potential to do, you're talking about what an actual thing has a potential to do. There aren't um, separately existing potentialities that exist in some possible world of unrealized uh, possibilities, even though some philosophers uh, sometimes talk that way. Mm -hmm. um, and this connects to the broader issue of uh, causality and Ayn Rand's view of causality, which is that uh, it's, it's the relationship between the nature of an object and its actions. And Mike, you were fleshing that out a bit, talking about how there are facts about the structure and the constitution uh, of uh, certain substances on the molecular level, for instance, and that explains the types of things they are capable of doing. And that's that's essentially what we're talking about when we're talking about the potential actual relationship. Uh, and if you're interested in learning more about this, one place you can look is Ayn Rand's book, Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. There's an appendix in this book where there's a conversation between her and a number of philosophy professors talking about uh, her theory of concepts and how to apply it to different cases. And there's an extended discussion of this issue of uh, uh, potential versus actual and how it relates to her view of causality and how it relates to what philosophers call dispositional properties versus con uh, constitutive properties. This is uh, pages 282, 288. Some of it gets a little technical, but if somebody really wants to learn more about it, that's, that's one place to look. So um, in the interest of bringing like these ideas, these philosophical ideas 
let's say down to earth a little bit. Um, how are these differences between the potential and the actual that you talk about in, in these in kind of rather abstract terms potentially impact our own lives? So for instance, um, a big part of the objectivist position on abortion uh, deals with the issue of the potential versus the actual. And this is obviously a situation that many people are affected by. Yeah, so it doesn't just potentially influence our lives, it actually influences our lives. <laughs> and uh, the abortion example is a good case uh, to give. And so how this comes up normally in the debate about abortion in, uh, with objectivism is because there's a distinction between the potential and the actual, uh, you can apply this distinction to something like the embryo or the fetus. What the embryo and the fetus are, are potential individual human beings. And the facts about them that make them such, including prominently uh, their genetic code, are facts that people will point to in order to argue, well, they're human beings who have rights too. And it's true that there are that these facts are there. It's true that they have this genetic code, but because these are the facts that make only for their potential, uh, they don't establish that the the embryo or the fetus actually has rights. You might say they have potential rights, just like they're a potential human being, potential individual human being, but they're not an actual, actually individuated uh, uh, human being. They haven't been physically and physiologically separated from their mother which uh, for lots of reasons is the reason that objectivism sees as, as finally bestowing rights, uh, finally generating the need to, to say that they have rights. And uh, we could talk about that later, but um, having said that, and in light of some of the things that Mike said, keeping in mind that, well, every potential something is an actual something else, uh, that's important to realize for this debate too, because it, one thing that it means is that when you're saying that the fetus is a potential human being, you're not saying it's nothing. Um, a fetus still is what it is and it has the characteristics that it has. And because those are actual characteristics, um, they matter for how we think about uh, the fetus, for instance. And so there can be value in a potential person to the right kind of person. So if you're a mother and you want to have children, uh, to it, you know, it's not right to say, well, it's just a potential. That the potential has extreme importance to you because you want to have a child, and so you you know then that there are things that you need to do to take care of the fetus, to nourish it, to keep it safe, to get prenatal care, etc., uh, to maximize the chances that this potential is going to be actualized. And so, uh, it, when you're saying it's just a potential, that doesn't mean that it's nothing. No, it is something, and even potentials can have value, but of course they only have value in this case to the person who wants to have the child. Uh, makes a big difference uh, if you don't want to have the child. In that case, the potential is not going to be valuable to you. And it's not clear to whom else it would be valuable. Um, and that's a, another longer conversation. But yeah, I think this is a case where knowing something about the metaphysics uh, of potentiality and actuality can, can help settle this kind of ethical political controversy. Um, okay, so moving on to our fourth and last question of the day. The questioner attributes this, the following quote to Ayn Rand. Don't bother to examine a folly. Ask yourself what it accomplishes, close quote. And the question is, what does this folly of altruism achieve? This is an interesting question. And uh, it's, it's also the opportunity to set something uh, on the record uh, straight. I don't think that the person's getting this wrong, but it's important to be careful about quoting Ayn Rand uh, out of context as sometimes happen. And importantly, one important piece of context here is that these words are being spoken by, uh, by one of her villains, Ellsworth Tui, he's one of the ones who says, he's the one who says, don't bother to examine a folly, ask yourself what it accomplishes. And it's just an important methodological point to flag that uh, sometimes there are uh, lines from her villains that are attributed to Ayn Rand where she doesn't agree with them because they're coming out of the mouths of her villains. Uh, ARI has written a number of kind of fact-checking pieces where we expose these kinds of errors in the way that certain Ayn Rand quotes are, are sometimes used. Now, in this case, um, even though it's coming from one of her villains, uh, she herself did quote herself on this, using this line of Tui's 
uh, from the Fountainhead approvingly. There are certain articles of hers where she says, remember what Tui said. Uh, and for instance, in her article, Extremism, or um, her article, Extremism in, in Capitalism, the End and Ideal, uh, she uses it with regard to the concept of extremism. She, she says, don't bother to examine folly, ask what it accomplishes. Uh, she does the same thing in her essay, The Comprachicos, where she talks about the, the impact of irrational 20th century philosophy on education. Um, though I should point out that in, the, in both of these cases where even she quotes herself approvingly, uh, she's, it's not quite true that what she's recommending is not to examine the folly and only to examine its consequences. Because uh, for instance, in the case of extremism, the essay is called Extremism or the Art of Smearing, she does quite a bit of examination of the folly. She, she explains <laughs> why extremism is an invalid concept, why it packages together fundamentally different types of fact and reality, why it can't serve as any kind of valid form of cognition. And then she talks about the, the negative impacts of the use of the concept. That's the exa examining what it accomplishes. And that's part of what makes this concept of extremism an anti-concept is that it has these uh, has these deleterious consequences. Same thing uh, with uh, the, the fallacies of 20th century philosophy. She doesn't necessarily untangle all of them in the essay, The Comprachicos, but she's, she's written at length about those uh, fallacies and uh, false premises and stolen concepts involved in, in various forms of 20th century philosophy at length elsewhere in her work. And so I think when she does cite this when she does quote herself on this phrase, I don't think she should be taken as saying, don't do the examining at all. No, you have to understand the concept of the claim sufficiently to see whether or not it's actually true. But then yes, you should also look at the consequences. And in saying this, I think part of what she's emphasizing is the, uh, the point of view that she often stresses uh, of the importance of taking ideas seriously, that, that debating about the truth or falsehood of uh, some philosophic point or another is not just an academic exercise, that it has really important, really important consequences for everyday life. Uh, and I'll put on the screen here a, a reference to a, an essay of hers where she talks about this at greater length. Uh, it's her essay, Philosophical Detection, which appears in her collection, Philosophy Who Needs It. And one thing she says there is that in order to evaluate some uh, philosophical idea properly, ask yourself what a given theory, if accepted, would do to human life starting with your own. And she thinks this is something that you should do for uh, ideas that you judge to be true and, and definitely something that you should do with ideas that you judge to be false. Uh, it helps show why it matters to figure out whether these theories are true or false. And I'll just add uh, then to address the second part of the person's question, because they're asking, what does the folly of altruism accomplish? And one place you can look for the answer to that question is to Tui himself, because he actually had, he uses this line uh, in the context of a speech that he's giving to Peter Keating in the Fountainhead, explaining why he pushes altruism on people. So you get it in effect from the horse's mouth. He's like an insider who's explaining the evil motivations for why he's acting the way he does. So I think it's, it's doubtful that most evil people are this self-conscious about what they do, but the, thing that he emphasizes is that uh, you can use, is that people will push altruism uh, as a form of, uh, out of a form of power loss. They want to be able to control people through guilt. They want to be able to get them to sacrifice by inculcating guilt about not living up to the altruistic moral codes. The idea that says that you, know, you should self, you should sacrifice your own interests for those of others. Um, I also want to point out that that's, that's her. That's the way she characterizes what it accomplishes in the Fountainhead. I think that her view of this subject goes through some uh, further development later on in life. I think she doesn't discard that point, but that she sees even additional ways and different different functions that altruist thinking serves, uh, especially in her in her writing in. Uh, for the new intellectual and then also in that essay philosophical detection. Uh, and in her essay, The Age of Envy, she talks about how altruism serves the purpose of rationalizing people's hatred uh, for good people, for people who are efficacious thinkers. Uh, when they don't wanna do efficacious objective thinking of their own, they're, they're looking for ways to undercut, minimize the, the efficacious thinking of other people. And one way they do that 
is by getting other people to accept altruism. If you can get someone else to accept altruism and uh, without uh, any reason, if you're able to get someone else to accept it on faith and feel guilt that this is the way that they should be acting, but they're not, then you've put one over on them. You've, uh, you've been able to, uh, and, and, and knowing that they're believing something on faith makes you feel better about not being objective in your own thinking. And this is a theme Ayn Rand develops in lots of different places uh, in her later writing that I think is very fascinating. Yeah, um, a final point. I think, Ben, you covered the question about altruism uh, pretty thoroughly. I, I want to add just about quote, taking quotes from Rand's fiction, a note of caution in another direction. So this is, um, you have to be careful. This is a villain that's being quoted in this, uh, in this, uh, in this example. But even her heroes, especially in Atlas Shrugged, they go through a lot of development over the course of the story. So you can't even take it for granted that she's gonna agree with everything they say um, in the novels uh, either. So in The Fountainhead, there's Dominique um, as a character who goes through some substantial changes. And in, the, and in Atlas Shrugged, there's Reardon. So Reardon at the beginning of the novel is very confused about a lot of important things and at the end of the novel, he's got himself sorted out. So, um, I mean, this is a caution. You make this point about any uh, work of fiction that you have to be um, extra cautious that the author uh, might not agree with everything the characters are saying. And uh, speaking of Ayn Rand heroes, uh, we got a question from the audience. Uh, related to the topic we were just discussing about objectivity. And the question is, is Rourke, Howard Rourke, one of the characters from The Fountainhead, an example of total objectivity? I think he's a pretty good example. Uh, and I would have to think harder to uh, decide whether there are any cases in the novel where he wasn't being objective, but there are some prominent examples that come to mind where it's where it's a really good illustration of it. Um, so, for for example, uh, there's this there's the famous scene where he is offered this uh, the commission to the Manhattan Bank building on the condition that he alter his plans. And surely, at this moment, I mean, the way he's portrayed, uh, he's gripping the table. Um, tightly as if he's undergoing an internal struggle and he must be thinking because he's about he's he's at his rope's end and he's about to run out of money and he really needs this money and it, it must at least occur to him i could accept this uh commission and uh, i could uh get the money and yeah it would be this compromise but i would be able to put up with it for a little while but then he's got to be thinking well but this isn't why i got into architecture uh, the what i know uh, are the reasons that have prompted me to get into this field in the first place would be undermined by this kind of compromise. So that's that's one example of it. I also think that you see cases uh, in his interaction with Dominique uh, that have the same character, where um, she we know that uh, so they are they're in love with each other. Uh, there are at least two occasions in the story when Dominique goes to Rourke saying. Uh, I want to be with you, but uh, I think the world is out to destroy you. And so I, in order to um, uh, stop them from doing it first, I'm going to go be with some other man, whether Keating or Wynan. And if only you would quit architecture and we could live only for each other, I wouldn't do this, but you got to quit architecture. And it's the same thing. It's he, and you can tell from their interaction how painful this is to him that she's saying this to him and that he's going to lose her because of it. But again, he he won't compromise, and he he says, you know, Dominic, you're you're making a mistake. You've got to figure this out for yourself, and it's painful for to, for me to see this, but I I can't live on those terms. In order to say I love you, you first have to say the I. Uh, and there's especially a, there's a scene at the. Um, the beginning of part two, where he's gone, he's gone to work in the quarry, and I don't remember the exact language, but 
it's where he's he's you know right after the Manhattan Bank building scene where he's he's lost the commission and where he's now given up architecture at least for the time being and gone to work in the quarry, and he's sitting I think on the ground and he's he's starting to feel the pain associated with the loss, but he's looking at the pain in his own mind from the from a distance. He, he's there it is again coming up again. And you get the sense of that he's taking this step back to be able to look at that pain and to put it in perspective in the context of his overall life. And it's this kind of mental exercise, I suspect, that, that gives Rourke the kind of self-esteem that he expresses when he talks about the pain only going down to a certain point, that he doesn't let it envelop him, that he puts it in context because he's using this kind of objective method of thinking about his life. Okay, so those are all the questions we have for today. However, if uh, anyone has any questions or want to interact more with Ben and Mike, they're going to be doing a session on Clubhouse immediately after this podcast ends on the Iron Run Club. So just search for the Iron Run Club and you will be able to see that uh, session popping up in just a few minutes. Um, thank you also to our audience that uh, uh, issued that gave us a super chat donation. We really, really appreciate those. Uh, and if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube and click on the bell to get notifications when we go live or post, post new content. And uh, if you're watching the recording, please like, comment, or share the episode to help us attract new viewers. And also please consider doing the same if you're watching on Facebook. Uh, and if you have any questions or comments about today's episode or uh, you have suggestions for future episodes or questions that we, we would like us to address in a future Q&A episode, please send us an email at newideal at einrand.org. And we read all of your, re of your emails and we reply to many of them. So I will see you in Clubhouse in a few minutes and thanks everyone for joining us today. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.